Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, just head on over to officehours.global. That's kind of our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Or you can use the QR code that you'll see displayed on the screen uh, throughout the program. There it is right over there. Uh, You can take that and uh, shoot it with a phone or anything else, or look at the top of it, and you'll see askofficehours.com. That is the direct web browser link. So if you just put in askofficehours.com, you'll be put in the same system. It lets you simply put your questions in for the show. That goes to the team in the back end, and they move them into the show as needed. So that's an excellent, simple way to get your thoughts into what we should be talking about today. And as always, once you decide on a topic that excites you, Give it a vote up because what we want to talk about is what you want to talk about. So the more people who vote on a subject, on a question, the quicker we'll get to it. Today in our second hour, we're doing an informal retrospective of IBC, the recently completed trade show in Europe. It covers broadcast gear and adjacent topics. It's very much like NAB here in America. So if you saw or heard any announcements that came out of IBC, join us today in the second hour to discuss them. That's our second hour. Our first hour starts right now. Mitch, what's our first question? Thank you, Bill. First in, Rion Smith from Trinidad, West Indies, asking, Hey, guys, what do you think is the best platform for building a live streaming viewer community to pay-per-view the lives live, I guess live, at a Jazz Caribbean music pub and hosting the vids for also pay-per-view watching the content later. Alex, what are your thoughts? What would you use? I think Vimeo. I mean, that's the easiest one. I mean, so there's a lot of other ones that you can build up on and there's other platforms. The one that is the most approachable that is going to give you pay-per-view that is also going to give you live is probably Vimeo. They really lock this up at that that kind of entry-level process. I mean, once you go over that, there are a variety of, you know, bigger companies that will do that, but it's a lot of setup um, to make that actually work. And Vimeo will allow you to not, not only do pay-per-view and control your content, but you can even build uh, Android and Apple TV and other uh, apps that look like your app. And then they open it up and you can define, oh, I've got a tray of, I've got live events, I've got a tray of pay-per-view. So I think that that's probably the best one that I've, that I've seen so far. Yeah, I second that, actually. I use Vimeo uh, as kind of my content hosting thing because the ability to link from a video that you put up or a live program you put up into other websites is amazingly simple. They generate the URLs really simply, and it, it just takes a lot of the, f- the friction out of the process. So that would get my vote as well. Mitch, you had a thought? Yeah, I just had a quick th- thought about Vimeo versus um, YouTube. Are they more sensitive or less sensitive to copyright? like music and uh, things like that. It might be an effect. My experience has been they're all about the same, which is if you obviously rip something off, if you have uh, pop music that's very popular, you'll probably get a note back on it. I have never done that because I use all buyout music, but that's kind of what I've seen from reading about them. I think they all want to keep on the right side of the big publishers and things like that. So they try, but, you know... If, if you're doing something like that, and if you've watched Office Hours for a long time, you know there is a conflict. So you shouldn't use copy or other people's copyright stuff in yours without permission. And it's always the best thing. Alex? I think the, com- the complicated part related to that is really the uh, when you're, especially when you're playing music, if you're covering a song, whether it's going to get picked up or not. Um, it's not exactly that clash, but YouTube will definitely grab onto it. I don't think Vimeo will. So if you're if you're doing live performances, you'll probably find that Vimeo is probably a little bit more flexible than than YouTube is. That makes good sense. Let's go to the next question. 
from David Brady in New York, New York. David wants to know, looking for advice on pan-tilt Zoom cameras, four of them, to be deployed into a Zoom room appliance, Windows or PC, that will allow us to provide discrete feeds of four panelists and still provide PTZ control via the Zoom GUI. Insta and Ozbots Oz Oz are out, unfortunately. Alex, do you have a better suggestion for me? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a couple different companies that are in that kind of corporate PTZ world that might work. And I, and I don't have as much experience with controlling them through the Zoom room. So I'll just l list a couple that I've seen relatively often. Um, uh, Logitech, um, you know, is, is, has its own PTZs that are kind of built for this. Obviously, Polycam has, has some that are designed to build, work with some of these systems. PTZ Optics and, and, uh, and on the higher end, I don't know if BirdDog actually talks to the Zoom Zoom system. But those are the ones that you see pretty often in corporate environments to be controlled. And I, I would assume that those would look to be what you what you are looking for. One thing to think about with PTZs in general is, um, you know, how you configure them as well when you're talking about a corporate environment. And, um, you know, right now when we think about uh, conference rooms, we often have a big conference table and you may not be able to avoid that. But I will say that that what we found is that the, the most effective solution for this for pure conferences is um, to, to think about having, if, if you have room and if you can make this work, is to really think about um, uh, either a U like this or you can, you can really tie that U together where you just have a, a bigger table. Normally you have the, the PTZs out here. A lot of times what we found is that the PTZs work really better in here. Um, and um, now what, what we found is that we didn't need as many PTZs if we had the U, the U that I described earlier. So like this, when we were able to configure it that way, we had two PTZs here and, um, and sometimes we'd spread them, sorry. Um, do this again. And we'd spread them out a little bit so they don't hit each other. This one would go this way, which will seem odd, and this one will go this way, but you get a better shot on the on each individual. Um, and then we oftentimes had something some that was a little higher that was a high and wide. Um, and this configuration allowed us to get to each person. And what we would do is pre-program the seats that we knew that when people were going to sit in. So we pre-programmed the seats for the for the PTZs. Then you're just hitting buttons, and it just goes, and you get a better shot. Um, we found of, of folks to do it that way. Um, we did, we have put them on the outside. We just find that you just end up seeing a lot of back of people's heads. You'd be surprised at how um, sensitive, uh, how sensitive executives are about the back of their heads. <laughs> so just, so that's one of the reasons we moved those PTCs into that center area and didn't have them in a place where they'd see the back of their heads. They, uh, a lot of the, a lot of, uh, and I, I understand the sense, I'm not as sensitive to it, but I understand the sensitivity because I have the same problem, which is that look fairly normal in the front, but there's a lot of space in the back. And um, anyway, so, uh, so a lot of executives we found weren't going into the rooms that had, uh, that, that had the, the PTZs on the running on the outside. And it finally came out. It was because of the backs of their heads. They just didn't want to meet. And, and the thing is, is the, the, the hard part with a lot of these things is what people will tell you and what they won't tell you. They don't want to admit it. They don't want to talk about it. They just kind of just don't show up, you know, or, or say, wow, that's too far away from my office. And sometimes the, the reason we, we realized it wasn't too far from the office, we had one executive that wouldn't do it. He was right next to his office. I mean, it was like down the hall, like, like a hundred feet. He's like, ah, I can't, you know, and we finally, we, we finally put it together. There was a the strong correlation between having a bald space in the back of their head and not wanting to go into conference rooms that had exterior um, PTCs. I know that's not your question, but 
it might be more useful than the other answer. <laughs> so, it, it is very much because I ran so, into the same thing with executives. Yeah. Exactly. It is a thing. And they uh, won't tell you because they don't, you know, executives no. won't talk about it. They, they, you know, you have to always, the hardest part with corporate is, you know, in, in Hollywood and in entertainment, you usually know what people want and don't want because they usually yell it at you um, at a really high, you know, like they're, you know, it's a, it's a high volume, you know, throwing things and, 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 and telling you in corporate, there's this, this underlying current. It's like an under underground river that you have to pay attention to all the time. Uh, people will say things or they'll do things and you have to, it's, it's like reading the tea leaves about what's actually happening because it's never what it appears, you know, like it never is how it appears. It's always like this. I don't quite understand why they're doing that. And, it, it, I think it turns your senses really high. It's actually really good as far as paying attention to people because especially when you get into C, it's the C-suite that just gets, they got there by not saying big things, like by not, not throwing tantrums, not doing those things. And so um, we got, with, some, with some executives, we had to just look at, we, we'd see their eyebrow go up like that and we knew that there was something wrong and we would all like, there'd be a big meeting about it. They would never say anything. Like, you know, and we would have to, we'd have to divine what that eyebrow meant, you know, because it was something. You know, and they'll make decisions, but they won't tell you what they are. So I had someone pull me aside and say, never touch up a CEO's makeup where people can see you. We used to have to oh, put yeah, yeah. Gray backstage just oh, yeah. so they had a private place to go in case because they oh, didn't man. want to even be seen getting makeup. It's just, it was it, they didn't want to be seen going into the room that had makeup. So yeah. it was, you know, like it was. It, 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 yeah, that's that's another one. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of little tricks. Uh, Chris Fenwick. You know, Alex, you were talking about where to put the PTZs in the U and stuff. And it made me think that if, if I was sitting at those tables, I would try and make those things bump into each other. I, I you know, I, I would uh, time my questions like, oh, it'll hit. And it reminded me of um, the first season of MTV's Real World. Uh, they did it in New York City and the cameras were actually cabled. They were tethered so that downstairs in the basement, the directors could watch all the action. Right. And the the kids in the house took it got, upon they themselves. It. They got really good at getting the cables, the cameras tangled because they would see the guy and they'd go, okay, now go over it. And they played a game with the crew. And every once in a while, they'd have to stop and go, we have to untangle the cables. And they'd have to like unwrap them all. And then, yeah. Do it again. Yeah. <laughs> Mitch. I have a thing about PTZs when they do that pan tilt move that's perfect. It's almost uh, almost computer like in its way. Is there a way to teach it to do what a normal person would do if they were operating a camera and well, make that look good? I and then tell you quickly, the the second comment I have is: Doesn't Ron Popeil still make that uh, spray on bald spot remover? <laughs> don't use that. <laughs> don't use that. Uh, the um, the <laughs> at every hardware store, flat yeah, black. Yeah, yeah, flat black. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The uh, so you can with the PTZs. Uh, I don't. I almost never shoot to a PTZ moving for exactly the reason that you said is that is that I don't. I don't really. Um, uh, I just cut to them. It's all just straight cuts. You don't see the moves, especially in a conference room. You don't need to see the moves going across the conference room. So I'm always just. I get. I you know. I, I see that the person starts talking. We hit it. And we move it. And we've even had, we have some systems that we built. I don't, I, I think people have come up with them now, which is basically they build up control systems for the PTZs. So the, the, when the person starts talking, the PTZ that's designed for it 
will look, will go right over to that person. And now you can usually set speed and ease in out, e- ease in, ease out for larger systems. So um, the telemetrics has an ease in, ease out in a, in a, in a speed. So it'll go over and slow down as it, as it gets there. And it still doesn't feel like a human, but it feels better. We actually had one person following. We were on a stage in New York, and I had hired someone to manage our BRC 900s. And, and, I, and I said, hey, I don't think that back camera, I thought that was a PTZ. And they go, oh, yeah, it is. Because I was like, it looks like it's operated because they they're following the speaker across the front. And there I look over, and this guy is like, he's never done a PTZ ever before. And he's like following the guy. And, um, and I said, I got to know how you're doing that. You know, like, like, how are you following the person with the controller? And he, he looked at the, the Sony controller, which is the worst controller out there, the one built for the, for the 900s. And he said, this joystick it, it has got so much more control than Xbox. <laughs> I realized, I was like, I was hiring the wrong people. Turns out, X, and from then on, we started really targeting Xbox um, users. And uh, Xbox, it turns out, if, if you're really, really good at, at uh, Call of Duty, it turns out you're really good. At, you can be exceptional as a PTZ operator. Absolutely. Let's go to the next question. Over to Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York, asking, why would Black Magic go with Matty Audio versus Dante on the ATEM TV Studio HD 8 ISO? Is the Dante supply chain still an issue? Jason, start us off. No, and even if it was, that that wouldn't be why. Um, this is straight up money. Dante charges or Audinate charges uh, a licensing fee that is substantially more than Matty, which I believe is an open format. So it's as simple as that. Alex? Money and simplicity. So I'll just add a little bit to Jason. Jason's right. It's, it's free, but they could have used Ravenna as well. But Ravenna is really complicated. Um, so, so Ravenna is actually a really powerful tool for very, very large installations like the Olympics or, or other things like that. Um, but for the kind of user that Blackmagic typically sells to, it would not be a good solution. Um, but it, it's closer to a Dante solution than Maddie. Maddie is just a, I just plug it in and it works. Um, it's very, it's much more limited. Uh, it still has all the same clocking problems that Dante has for some of them anyway. I've, I've experienced those. Um, but it is, um, but it's much simpler to implement uh, and it's free. So definitely, I think Jason's right. Uh, I would only add that it's also simpler. There's other free versions or, or, or less expensive solutions, but they're, they're more complicated and it would be, the users would probably not use it. Just the way the users barely use Maddie with the Blackmagic stuff because it's just still not something that they're familiar with. The problem is Blackmagic sells enormous amounts to event companies and event companies all use Dante. <laughs> so the broadcasters are, you know, use less black magic and they all use Maddie. And so, so the, the, the mismatch has had it be not super supported either way. Mitchell. Yeah, it's an open standard uh, ratified by the AES. It's called AES 10. It does like 64 channels at 48 kilohertz and the channel count drops when you go up on the sample rate. Um, yeah, I think they're doing simply for the same reason you just said, is that uh, it's an open standard, it's uh, easily implemented, and it's really been around a long time. It's been a couple of decades, I think. Next question. Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. What is the least expensive way to implement scopes in my setup, preferably a dedicated piece of hardware with a display? Alex. Depends on what kind of scopes you're looking for, whether it's video scopes or audio scopes. Uh, T T E is it T T E Electronics? Um, T C no, Electronics. T C okay. Electronics have some great audio scopes that are a piece of hardware, so that you can actually um, plug those in, and they're not very expensive for audio um, tracking, even up to five one. Uh, that so those those work actually pretty well. 
for video, I would I would still say um, you know that uh, that Omni you know um, Omniscope uh, is still probably the best solution. It's it's going to be a, still a Mac Mini with monitors um, and a, some kind of uh, digitizer. So you have something that's taking it in. It could be you know um, any any kind of you you want it to be not the H two sixty four. So not like the web presenter. You want it to be something like a mini studio, a micro studio, or or something that's going to bring uncompressed uh, into it. That's we've used in the past. Um, the UTAPs, I believe, will work as well. Um, and so those will go in and feed it the information. Now, I will admit, I strongly, I know that you're looking for a piece of hardware. I strongly prefer a piece of software. We've used a mixture of Scopebox and, and Omniscope for a long time. And the reason that we've done that is because once you get it into that Mac Mini, you now have multiple monitors and you have lots of places you can put it. So you can feed it. The hardware scopes tend not to feed their displays. And they're getting better. I mean, so, I mean, the, the, um, you know, there's bigger ones. Fabrics is another one that that does that has just a box that will output what you want. Now that's going to start to get expensive. <laughs> you know, like so. Um, you know, so those are the um, uh, those are the ones that you want to kind of think about. There are some. You know, it depends on what you're trying to do. Is also if you're trying to install it, you have a dedicated piece of hardware. There are smaller ones as well. Um, and there's one that I always want to call Weather Report. It's not Weather Report, but I can't think of the name of it. That is about eight hundred dollars. That that is a small one. I'll try to I'll try to find it quickly here. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, on the other end of the uh, spectrum, isn't a Sarnoff SR1 a pretty uh, nifty device for checking? Um, the the Sarnoff. You're talking about the Sarnoff signals. Yes. Yeah, they're they're good for. So the the big thing about the Sarnoffs, the Sarnoff signals that are available, is that those allow you to visually interrogate your pipeline. So what I and what I mean by that is you push them into the pipeline, and on the other side you can just see what's working and not not working. So the way that they work, they're not scopes, but they are something that will in, that will push your signal. Um, that uh, so interrogating your signal is is different than having scopes, um, and oftentimes you want both. You know, so scopes will tell you some things, and the and the Sarnoff signals will tell you something else. Uh, so, so you want to have you want to look at both of those. Um, but I, I I will say that a lot of people that I know have moved even when they've had access to hardware to the Omniscopes because Omniscope is very flexible. It just allows you to kind of move things around and and get things exactly the way you want to lay lay them out, and then you can send them out to other things. And so we found that you know Mac Minis with Omniscope or Mac Minis with Scopebox, but but we. Um, that's what, I mean, we have had at times four to eight Mac minis that are stacked up that are just doing scopes, you know, like they're in a, in a rack and they're just pushing out scopes for us to look at. And those, those are mostly scope box, but we've now moved more to Omniscope just because it has more tools and it's a little bit more flexible. So, um, I, I still think that while it takes a little bit of putting together rather than a piece of hardware, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll come up with this, um, uh, I'll, I'll come back with this this other piece of hardware that I, for some reason, is escaping me. Maybe 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 it's in the back. I don't know if someone brought it up. Yeah, let me take a little bit more time then and give Alex a moment to do that. I've got a couple of things. First of all, a, a radical select suggestion for this. The software scopes have been really good for a long time. And I remember being uh, surprised when I tested maybe, gosh, seven or eight years ago, the software scopes inside Final Cut. They're, they've got scopes inside Final Cut, Premiere, uh, I think Avid Unasm. So they're all over the place that way. And maybe finding a used laptop from the old days that somebody's tossing off cheap that has one of those NLEs pre-installed will get you to scopes in a simple way. The only questionable side of that is that it's sometimes the I.O. 
into a laptop for just a single purpose like that could cost you a little money to get the adapters for that. But it's it's one way to look at it. The scopes on software for laptops are really good. Uh, that said, I have one more thing to talk about, which is the fact that you're voting and your questions are always important here. Remember, you can use the QR code, right? Oops, I used the wrong arm. You can use the QR code right there to pop in. Also, you can just type in askofficehours.com. That'll get you into the question queues. This show is driven by your questions. We have a lot, but that means that the voting is incredibly important. If you're in the Mukana system, you can vote questions up and down. That determines the order of the questions we handle and how long we kind of spend on them. So know that. Alex, did I give you enough time? Are you ready? No, I can't. Wait. No. <laughs> it, 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 the, the hard part is, is that I, I, it, I don't know why. You know, get, Your head gets into this thing where it, it is um, – uh, it, it, your head, I, for some reason I cannot. And when I say that it probably won't, there it is. I found it. It's, I found it. It's digital That's forecast. So, so I, for some reason I always have, want to call it weather, you know, I, I can't, I can't get the forecast out of my head. So digital forecast bridge is a, a very small, um, SDI HDMI. I, and it also does us up, down, cross. Uh, I think it's limited to 3g. Um, uh, and the one that we use, so on larger events, we mostly use Fabrics. Fabrics has a handheld one as well um, that we've used in the past, but it's the, the Fabrics um, SXE3 um, is or SX is about $8,000, but that's the one we see the most that shows up at things. But tr very trusted truck operators that I've worked with, the one that they carry around are these digital forecasts, um, and they will show you up to eight eight. Um, channels of audio. Um, they have uh, a lot of scopes built into them. So that's like a little handheld one that you can walk around with and plug things into to see what's actually happening. Uh, it is very useful to have these on on site. Um, so if you're looking for those, but as far as a, a, a robust, I'm going to look at all the things that are out there. Um, we still find that the Omniscope works, uh, works really well. Excellent. Next question. Our man in New York, uh, Mr. David Brady says, uh, what's the story behind the pro video formats update that Apple pushed uh, today or last night. Anything new and exciting in the hopper? Jason, start us off. Mm, I mean, yeah, kind of. If you look at the App Store, so uh, following the apps, they also um, updated Final Cut Pro. And uh, apparently they say that you can enhance the look of footage shot not just on the iPhone 15 Pro, but the Fuji, DJI, and Ari cameras that are using log profiles. So other than that, I'd say not really. Alex, I mean, it's important that Apple keeps on um, is keeping up with it, you know, so I think that that that, that what we're seeing is Apple, uh, you know, uh, keeping up with the updates that are there. Um, I think that there have been some key uh, workflows that have been improved in, you know, the Apple ProRes raw and HQ. I think they have tweaked a couple of things to support the iPhone. I will say that as and I think that the reason that this has come out right now uh, or this week is specifically at getting ready for the iPhone release. Um, so um, one thing that I, I didn't see here that I think that they I, I think that that's going into this is how are they going? I think what, what we don't know is how they're going to support the stereo on the new iPhone Pro Max. Um, technically, what they should be doing, uh, compared to, given what they talked about at WWDC, is using the HEVC MV format. Uh, that's been around since like 2015, but it hasn't been used very much. And what it does is it has a hero eye, which is typically the left eye. The right eye is a delta compression against that against that piece here. And uh, is that the is that the new one? Is that the new one, or are you just? I wish. No, I yeah. was just I was just showing <laughs> like, the. How did he get that? It would so, be these um, two. No, I'll have it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I won't. Not that I'm bitter. Anyway, so um, the 
so, but it, it basically left right right eye, and I think that they may have tucked that into this, um, but we'll see. Um, but I think that the interesting thing is is that the the iPhone continues to become a full on broadcast tool. I mean, it is it, the, the, you know the, with all the support of, of of what they're putting in there. When you look at the log formats that are now being supported, and and um, the fact that they're using Aces, there's a there is a I think that it's you know there's a there are teams at Apple that that really pay a lot of attention to um, their pros, and they don't have to even use Apple, you know, stuff. And they're figuring things out, and you can see the effect of that when when you, that they have the, this kind of these pro groups inside that are just doing R and D around production. When you see things like Aces support, for, you know, within a phone, it's a big deal, you know. So so I think that we're gonna we're, it's gonna be really exciting to see how the phone how the phone works. Yeah, and Apple has on their website the list of the codecs and and formats that they've upgraded for this particular rollout. And like Alex said, you know, this they do regularly, typically when they do a new version of Final Cut or something in their pro video lineup, they'll uh, improve all the old, you know, these actually, the codecs are mostly controlled by whatever company makes them for their thing. So, you know, DVC Pro HD's improvement will have been worked out with the DVC Pro. Uh, I think that's Panasonic. And then as they get these improvements, they put them into the Pro Video formats. You just load those and suddenly everything's a little more up to date. So it's a nice upgrade system. Let's go to the next question. From Rion Smith and Trinidad West Indies, where would be a good place, online, books, etc., to learn how to be a better live streamer, producer, besides coming to office hours? Uh, for example, what camera angles to use, pacing of switching, crafting a show idea? Thanks for the hours of tutelage. Uh, nice of you to say that. Jason, start us off. Okay, there is no substitute for the real thing. And in this case, I honestly think that that joining the back end at, at office hours would be the fastest possible way. Honestly, if I could do it all over again, this is the kind of learning environment where you get to do hands-on with somebody like right next to you that truly is an expert. And it's the fastest way to, to, to really get this down pat. There you go. Uh, Alex. Yeah, I, I I think that you got to go out and do it. Um, so with whatever you've got, start start cutting shows and then asking questions here. That's why we're here every day, so that you can ask questions as you start to learn. Um, you you can you know find the the thing that I would do, and I, I I wish I had a better solution for you, but there really isn't a lot. I threaten to write books, but I you know writing books take a long time. So um so anyway, I uh, um you know a couple of us have talked about it. The hard part is getting people who know it to to. Uh, to to spend the time to do it. It's not that they don't want to tell anyone. They're just really busy doing doing the thing. Um, we are going to do some roundtables um, in the not-too-distant future. I'm, I'm talking to a couple of TDs. I don't know whether they'll be part of the second hours or they'll be their own little show, but really, you know, talking about, you know, how they approach cutting shows. Uh, and so, so stay tuned for for that. But I, um, and if you have those, put those requests into the second hour in Discord because we do pay attention to that. But I think that those are the kind of things we'd like to do more of to kind of give you that. But I, the best thing to do to prepare even for those things is to go do it. Even if you're getting a couple little cheap cameras and um, a little switcher, go out and help nonprofits do live streams and do other people do live streams. I would recommend doing them for free for first <laughs> at first so that uh, people aren't yelling and asking for money back and you're not you know, you know, you're, you're just learning, but you know, when you give things to people, they tend to be a lot more forgiving about things not being perfect. But then what you want to do is be a perfectionist and keep pushing it. Um, and consider that your education, 
you know, it, it's not, you know, but I think that the best way to do it is to just to get out there and do it. Exactly what Jason said. And I would recommend jumping into our back end. You're going to see a lot. Here's the thing that you'll learn from what we do is you're going to learn it's not it's not the same as using a directly cutting on a, on a switcher, but you're going to learn the process of switching. And there's there's things and the requirements and the limitations. And you're also going to learn a lot about comms. Comms are like half the show. And so understanding how you sit inside of a larger production unit and, and you work with everybody, you've got all these people, that's actually oftentimes more important to a TD than, than the mechanical cutting is to understand how they fit into that larger team. And so the reason, one of the many reasons we, we want this to be available and we want people cutting on the back end is specifically so that they just get the sense of being that part of that larger team. And it's a global team. There's, you're, you're building a, a, a kind of event that is still going to, I think, be the future. Um, and so I would highly recommend jump, you know, uh, reaching out. You can see the volunteer status in, um, in, in the emails that go out. Uh, and we'll, you'll see announcements occasionally in Discord as well. But I would highly recommend becoming a volunteer on our back end um, to kind of understand how a lot of the, these pieces come together. Let's go to the next question. From David Brady in New York, New York. The Amazon Echo Home Hub was announced yesterday, built on Matter. With the hooks into all the other Amazon products you have at home, vacuums, doorbells, TVs, etc., is the panel stoked? Or is it scared about putting too much trust in the machine? Jason Bache, become philosophical for us. I would say neither. Um, Matter is simply a cross-device and cross-platform protocol. It by itself is, is kind of nothing. As far as anything that Amazon makes, not in my house. Sorry. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're getting so many more smart appliance and Internet of Things devices coming on. And I think the last time I sniffed my local network at my house, I was astonished by how many things surrounding me I had no knowledge of were kind of knocking on the door of my network. Alex? Yeah, I, I've had all of them. Um, I And I think that the Amazon stuff is, is actually pretty good. I think the the real problem for a lot of us is that we're, as Apple users, a lot of, a lot of Apple users are just waiting for this to figure itself out for an Apple user. And, and, you know, like we're just, you know, like we've kind of tried a couple things. Uh, even even the ones that I have now, I have one that turns my lights on and off in, in this office altogether. And even that one doesn't work perfectly, you know, and it's, and so um, I know that Chris has done a lot. Of, he's he's, he's out, of the, out of the room at the moment, but he's done a lot more work on automation. And I do think that there are some solutions that I think we need to pay more attention to um, related to threads, um, and uh, so, so I think we're going to talk more about that in the not too distant future. Probably, I don't know if it's going to be part of the standard like second hour and office hours, but I think that we, we need to find some time to talk about it because I think that it's. Um, I want. I I would love to automate everything. It's just that I find everything so clunky that I just I'm like I don't have time for that. So, so this this could be a good step forward. It's just that I think so many of us have been burned so many times that a lot of us are going to wait and let it roll out for you know, a little time, like a year or two. That's how long it takes to know if it's going to work or not. I've been using a wireless security system from Arlo, which I think is a subsystem, or at least it used to be a subsystem of Netgear. It may have been spun off on its own. But the thing is, I just heard maybe three or four months ago that there was an Apple HomeKit attachment. So it's been an island in my house for six years, seven years, right. and suddenly there is the potential that it can tie in more to other things that I'm doing. So the evolution has been slow, but steady. So I, I think it's something worth talking about. It, it's definitely interesting to me. Next question. 
Charles Hodge from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, wants to know, since gray matter is now a commercial project with membership fees for all and a potential income stream as a business, even its negligible income, how does this affect the workflow and resources and the fixes when there are problems? Alex, it's your baby. It's definitely It's still in the negative. So, so far, the number of people subscribe. We, if, if your if your if your subscription is coming up and it's asking for five dollars a month, uh, we really appreciate it. That's all I got to say. Uh, the uh, uh, your five dollars does make a difference. It just goes to uh, making sure that we have enough mics and and you know paying for those. I mean, we send these mics all over the U.S. and so uh, so figuring out how to how to make those actually work is is or how to get that working. It's still we're still making less than we're spending on it, um, but it does it is taking a little bit of the of the. Um, uh, a little bit of the pressure off um, just from the various fees that we have uh, floating around. But the primary ones are equipment, which is the, we, we're trying to send mics out because every time we let somebody use their own mic, something happens bad. And so we're trying to send our own mics out and also um, getting them back and processing that and everything else is still, that's our number one cost at the moment. So we'll, 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 if it gets bigger, it helps us fix a lot of things. I mean, if it got... If we got up to a point where we really had cash coming in, again, the kits would change, everything else would change, and we would um, be able to push it harder, but we're not there yet. So we'll see how it goes. Next question. Matt L. in Oakland, California. What is the least expensive and most affordable Blackmagic device that does SuperSource? Alex? I believe it's the ATEM Mini Extreme ISO. This is the one that I have here. Um, So I think that is the least expensive, um, and you can get it with either SDI or uh, or HDMI, but the, I think that's going to be the least expensive solution to do that. There's a, for a little bit more, um, I believe you can get, I want to say the 2ME um, isn't that much more expensive, and now you're going to have a lot more I.O. Um, and and the ME as well, and, and the super source as well. Next question. Next question from Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, I've been testing the Candow Meeting Ultra, and I've designed conference rooms with gallery and shared screen monitors on the ta- tables placed just below cameras to promote hybrid meeting equity. Attendees looking eye to eye. Thoughts and thanks. Alex. So I think the Candow, if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, is like a 360 um uh, it's a 360 camera. So Candow makes 360 cameras. They make a lot of different sizes of them. And this one is kind of like the owl. It was the first one that did this where it gives you kind of a 360 out and then it allows someone to kind of look around. The weird thing about it is it doesn't, I mean, it depends on where you put it. If you put it in the middle of the, um, uh, you know, I think you're putting it, I think, um, yeah, I, you're putting it somewhere where people can kind of pan back and forth. Uh, it's better. It's a step towards the, the, it's probably a step towards the right solution. I mean, audio is really, really important. Um, more, probably more than video. Uh, I can tell you after being after meeting, after meeting, after meeting, that the best way to do this is to not use the conference rooms and have everybody come in from their own space and have us all like the way we do it here. That is the best way to do it. Um, I know that people don't want to do it. They want to use their conference rooms. They spend a lot of money on that hardware and they spend all that stuff. But I'm in meetings uh, every day where I get to be in meetings that are have four people in a conference room or five people in a conference room and everybody else remote. The funny thing is, is that what's happening now, if everybody has, when people jump in and a lot of people are well set up in their own ones, and most importantly, if one of the principals is out of the conference room, the the tilt that I've noticed is that the conference room gets kind of ignored. <laughs> they, 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 you know, they, they get, you know, so as the, as the tools for the remote, and this is a good, exa- a good reason for many people watching this to think about updating your, your kit 
at home, if you're working from home, is that what we found is that as people didn't look so schlocky on the online version, they'll tend to talk, start bouncing back and forth and talking to each other. And the conference room starts to have a hard time um, keeping up with it. You know, it keep, you know, and so they get kind of red. It used to be we would sit on the outside and now they're sitting on the outside. And, and so because we have better kits, you know, and we look and sound better um, than they do. And so uh, it's just, you know, so that's the, um, I don't think that there's any really good way to do this. I mean, I think that the other, the only other thing I can think of is, is doing what we do with, um, if you look at the old Final Cut user group um, stuff that we did, where you're, you put a round table and you're cutting, you're, you have all your cameras going between people and everything else, like re, really rebuilding these things, um, I think is the only way that you can get them on the same. But I think that as we go through year, year after year, I think conference rooms will be the last place you want to be if, you have, if you've got a good space um, to, to shoot in. So it just depends on how, how people equip their offices and their homes. Next question. Chris Fenwick from Half Moon Bay, California, and right here on our panel. Hey, would it be worth it to figure out a way to get a pro mic into your iPhone when you set up your new personal voice in iOS 17? Jason Bache. I think you mean out of your iPhone. I don't know why you would want to get it into your iPhone. The idea is you generate this this personalized voice, and then you can use it in you know, in, in as a substitute to speaking. So I don't know why you would want to get it well, in. You have to sample it first. So he, I think the question is, is, oh, okay, now I understand. How do you want yeah. to sample it? Um, and the answer is yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, you should definitely, if you're going to do it from an iPhone, um, I think I have one laying around, but I don't think it's right in front of me. Um, the, uh, let's see. Um, the, uh, there is, you know, Ceramonic makes a great one that goes into if for the older phone, iPhones, which are the Lightning to XLR input, and so then you can just put your XLR mic into it. It's about 180 bucks, um, and so uh, that that Ceramonic is 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 good to get those in. There's a couple other solutions, but that's the one I've used probably on and off for 10 years or more. So um, so I, we found that one to be pretty pretty effective. Uh, and so uh, I would re definitely recommend it. If you're sampling someone's voice and you're going to want to reuse it, I would highly recommend using the um, using getting an, a, a real mic into it. Now, I don't know with the iPad whether you'll be able to take USB-C. Oh, yeah, you can. You can, sure you can you plug. Can. I'm sorry. Class compliant. The new one, yeah. 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 So the, the, the last two years of iPads, you can take your we've done we've done it for shows, actually. Uh, you can take it like an MV7 or something like that. And anything that's got a USB connection, you can plug it right into the iPad and use it there as well. So there you go. Hopefully that's a solution for you, Chris. Uh, next question. From Georgie Chantvery bortnick in Swissvale, New Hampshire. Can the interviewees just come in through WebRTC with a call or another cloud-based system? John Preto is going to help us out here. John? Hey, you know, all of the switching software, Wirecast, v, uh, vMix, and Mimo, all tried their own version of flavor of WebRTC, and they're all don't scale well and so they're all moving now to zoom zoom spent billions of dollars on their infrastructure and let them be the utility for video and then just feed that into all the video switchers so that's where we're at today uh, alex yeah the um uh webrtc is is great you just have to always know that there's a little bit of delay so as you go up to um that process the as you continue to delay, or there's a little bit of stability issues with WebRTC and, and trans, you know, and that's why Zoom is 
has has done well is because it's figured out how to kind of get through that with their secret sauce. But um, as you go past WebRTC, we haven't found a lot of other solutions that give you the same low latency. Uh, I do think that the future is really figuring out how we deliver both at the same time for a show where we have a little bit more latency going out to the show, but the people are able to interact. You know, it's made a big difference. I feel like it made a big difference for the way we do it here is that we're still talking inside the Zoom system um, and then our records are going out. But the, the main thing is, is that um, what we, the the challenge there is that um, when we go through, when, we, when we've gone through and we start adding latency, any latency, you can feel it in the conversation. I think it's much more fluid here than it is in many SRT solutions and other, other things. Um, don't forget, you drive the show. You drive the show with your questions and uh, curiosity. So if you have any questions, be sure to put them in. Don't forget the QR code here will get you directly to kind of the very front end of this. And you can just punch in askafterhours.com anytime, 24-7. You don't have to wait till the show is on. You can literally use this any time of day. If you think to yourself, I've got something and office hours would be a great place to get an answer, just pop in there. Log in your question. Eventually, you'll get moved into the full-scale uh, Mukana system, and that gets it right into the show. Uh, that system, by the way, is still an important part of what we do here, particularly it's a great community that kind of assembles for the show every day. Um, inside the Mukana system and kind of adjacent to it and discuss what we talk about on the show. So if you want to get a little more involved, go back to the original officehours.global website, follow the crumb trail to get into Mukana as a kind of daily participant if you choose to do so. And we'd love to have you in as much participation as you feel comfortable with on the show every day. Be great to have you. Let's go to the next question. Jan Burnett from Warsaw, Poland. Has anyone tried to live a live shade mirrorless cameras like a GH6 or FX3 for streaming? And how do you do that? Mainly in a budget way. Alex, you do a lot of this. We've done production. a little bit with the FX3 and mostly through mobile. You know, so that's been the only way we've been really able to change those colors. Uh, we don't have the live shading tools that we would have with a black magic or more professionals, um, you know, setups. And so uh, haven't been able to do it in a real fluid way, but but for basic operation, we, we found that that was possible. Mitch. Yeah, I use uh, FX3. There's two ways to get it. Uh, Sony has a nice remote uh, program that you can use uh, that's uh, hardwired and wireless if you need it. And there's another one that I think Alex also uses called Monitor Plus. And you can get a lot of stuff done, but you're right, it's not quite as uh, sophisticated as the Blackmagic Design uh, camera control. Next question. Next question, Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. Seems like Blackmagic Design should be offering a pan and tilt solution to pair with their latest Micro Studio Camera 4K G2. What would be the most cost-effective third-party solution to create a usable PTZ camera? Jason, start us off. Peter, you're not going to save much money, but uh, I'll, I'll give it. Asking you shall receive. Middle Things makes a little device um, that will, through the S bus or CAM bus, control a DJI gimbal. So, um, yes, Bluetooth camera control is possible, but uh, I wouldn't go with wireless. It goes Ethernet straight to the uh, Middle Things control and then through SBUS to the DJI gimbal. From there, you can get from Tilta a base so that you're not always using a battery plate, and that'll power you through, um, uh, what's it called, uh, PTAP. And yeah, that's it's not going to save you much money. <laughs> Alex? Yeah, the um, 
we really wish <laughs> black magic would get over this. We, we, we can't understand. I think that I, I, the only thing I can think of is that black magic is really, you know, they, they still see, even though a huge portion of their audience is, is, uh, um, a huge portion of their audience is corporate and education and, and all these other things. I think black magic still really is aiming towards film. You can see it with their, with their camera releases and everything else. And I think the, I think there's something about a PTZ that is a mental block for them. I, I can only say that I, I hope that the success of the FR seven, which is just tearing through the industry, um, will, um, hopefully push black magic to finally build a PTZ. I think PTZs are hard as well. I mean, they, they seem simple, but it's a lot of motors and things that they haven't built before. So maybe that, 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 that might be part of it, but I got to tell you that the, the FR sevens, um, we see them everywhere. <laughs> like, like they are just, they're just ripping through the, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most successful cameras Sony's released in a long time, uh, full frame PTZ and they're, and they're continuing to make it better. So it, it's, uh, and I think that it, it's, it's kind of burning up. I know that we, for a bunch of our events, went from 12Ks to FR7s for what we're doing for our solution because of the the, the power that those things had and, and what they looked like and then the obviously the scalability. Mitchell? Yeah, I agree with Alex. Uh, my buddy that runs a uh, rental house in Philadelphia says the FR7s and the FX6s together are the big yeah. uh, the rental systems out there. And the FX9 is kind of slipping a bit. I don't know why you would buy an FX nine if you if you if you had it if you had fx6 i mean the fx6 is so close to the fx9 that i i don't i don't quite understand that math anymore unless you already owned it all right let's go to the next question jeff Veely in henderson texas what solution do you recommend for bonding to internet connections for studio redundancy i currently use speedify is there a superior piece of hardware i should consider alex what say you uh, we don't bond bond our inter, our redundant internet connections. We try to figure out how we're going to do a fallover. Now we use Meraki for those uh, that fallover. Ubiquity has solutions as well, um, but those are those are fallovers between the two, um, as opposed to a. And you may still see a gap in it because it's designed not to flip back and forth randomly. So sometimes you might see a second gap that's there. You can try to use Speedify. We find that. You know, we're just always worried about stability of bonding and also increase bonding will increase the jitter. So if you're streaming something like Speedify or something that's bonding, those things make sense. If you're doing WebRTC, um, we find that that decreases the stability of the of the um, video. So um, I don't know if the hard as far as bonding them. Um, you, there, there are things like Peplink, um, you know, or PepWave, it's PepWave, PepLink, <laughs> one of those two um, is um, they have a lot of bonding solutions that you, that you could look at as well. Next question. Jeremy Horn in San Francisco Bay Area of California. HDMI into iPads with USB-C, pointing to it looks like a Orion program. Uh, new tool for the community. Jason, start us off. Yes, Jeremy, I read this too this morning on Mac Rumors, and it looks pretty neat. I don't know why they're leading with these uh, retro effects, because it does have clean monitoring out. Uh, where is it? I don't see it. Anyway, um, they they also recommend a $15 USB-C capture card, but they've got a list of the normal ones that work and have been tested by their team. All in, I mean, pretty neat. If it's a niche, it's a it's a niche thing, and I'd be interested to see how it works. But yeah, not a bad idea. Alex, yeah, I I, I all of them should be able to work. I don't know why this one is different from anything else that shows up as a webcam, but I think it looks great. Uh, we'll definitely probably jump on that. 
Let's go to the next question. From Alex 4D Golner in London, Tuesday's Final Cut Pro 10.6.9 update, FX Factory reports that it has a bug that breaks object tracking in title plugins that distributed on their post-production tool store. Is it time for Apple to change the way they beta test pro app releases? I don't know if they can change much. I mean, they have such a huge audience with so many configurations out there that this is, I've come to expect this a little bit, which is a new major release, usually within the first week, it, it, when when Apple finds something like this, and this is not a bug that's going to affect every single user, but a class of users, they'll get on it pretty fast. I would imagine there's a lot of activity in the back room at Apple, and we'll see a maybe 10.6.9.1 update just to solve this problem. They're pretty good at that. Um, I might turn out to be wrong with that, but there's just these systems are so complex that on every completely fresh release, we seem to get these for a while. Uh, I will say that Apple has been spot on in terms of attacking it very quickly. And usually these things that, particularly the ones that spike in the Internet, there's a lot of discussion about them. You can be absolutely sure that they know when they're fixing it as fast as they can. So fingers crossed for that for everybody like me who's a Final Cut user. Uh, Alex, thoughts? Yeah, I think the primary use of the last of the update is to get ready for the iPhone. So they're really building Final Cut as this, you know, they're I think that so what you're seeing is these updates are, are really designed to support the Pro and the Pro Max and the new formats that they're doing. And I've, I have to admit that they're probably looking at everything else is like, OK, we'll, see. we'll get to it. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, I so. have to admit there's been a lot of chatter in, in my circles about Final Cut Pro for iPad specifically. It's not really iOS. They, they kind of aimed it at the iPad users at the top end. And I know I, I actually saw hiring uh things about two months ago for building the iPad team around the Final Cut Pro release. So I know they're putting a lot of weight I, on it. I definitely think that they're both Blackmagic and uh, Apple are really gunning for uh, the social media producers, people who are producing, like, how do we provide the tools that they need to do that? And so I think that the iPhone is, you know, fits into that um, of, of having those tools and in in its integration with um, you know, with, with Final Cut, I think makes a big difference. And you're seeing the same thing with the way that, you know, the Blackmagic app is tying back into Blackmagic. All of these things are there to support mobile users. <laughs> so Absolutely. To, to, Such to a giant content. army and it's growing and it's young and it'll be there for 40 yeah. years for them if they can lock this in. It's, so. it's a, it's a big, you know, the, the thing we always want to look at is the size of, you know, the size of the market. Cause you're, if you look at this, this market here like this, this is, you know, up here, this is right here. That's, um, that's Avid. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's, that's where it lives. And I think that Premiere is having a hard time. Like they're living in this, this little area here, but they have to share it with, you know, Final Cut and Resolve and everybody else. So this is kind of a mixed area, but what's happening down here is what I think that's a, that's really is a, that's a battle mostly between, because the, the problem is the subscription keeps a lot of the social producers out of Premiere. So some of them, when they get larger, they're using Premiere. But but and when, when I talk to social media creators, um, the speed of Final Cut is what keeps a lot of them using it. So that uh, being able to go very fast. Um, as they get, become more technical, they used to go to Premiere and more and more of them are going to resolve, you know, as they as they look at those things. And so, um, so I think that th there's a huge fight for that, the bottom of that pyramid, um, knowing that eventually that bottom of that pyramid will become the top of the pyramid. <laughs> so, so the, um, you know, so, so, but, but I think that, you know, Avid has made no progress there, you know, other than they, they have a lock on 
um, Hollywood, um, but they don't. And, and there's a lot of tools in, in, in media composer and so on and so forth that aren't somewhere else. And so, you know, in pro tools and so on. So I think that they, they're going to be on a lock for a while, but that market isn't getting any bigger. It's only getting smaller. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this all, all pans out. Also, as internet connections get more robust, as fiber gets more places, the thin client idea, I mean, something like an iPad running a editing interface connected to a cloud storage system that you can share globally becomes a very compelling proposition. So we'll see how it works out. Uh, We're looking downstream. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, what would be the most effective deployment for PTCs in a church application? My main areas of focus are the congregation, choir, organist, piano player, and pastor. Alex. Yeah, it, as, as everything, it depends. So uh, a lot of times if you think about the sanctuary that's going to be here and you're going to have, it depends on where all the, the organ and the, and the podium and, you know, all this other stuff that, that are here. Um, a lot of times in churches, you have these big supports that are going down the side here. These are great opportunities to put cameras in the back, you know, or, or on the other side of them. This makes them kind of a bit invisible to the, the you know, everybody else. So if you've got your, your congregation through here, you have, you can hide these in here to get, get over there. But you're looking for things that are occluding the audience so they don't feel it as much. Um, and then you almost always want a, a high and wide on the back end here. But a lot of times this high and wide and then potentially a long shot together in the back. And then you have these against pillars or in the windows or other things like that. They're going to come across. It's not optimum. And if, you, if you're willing to put something in here, you're going to get this great shot. Um, but oftentimes that's occluding the audience here. And so that oftentimes isn't used. Um, we have, it depends on how high your ceiling is. We've also seen people come from the ceiling. And so it stays to suspended over top. And that depends on the, the height of the stage, as well as where they're standing here. You can sometimes, and, and how high, a lot of churches have a really high ceiling. And so they, uh, that doesn't work. But if they don't, um, that's another thing to kind of think about as you, as you look through those things. And the, 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 that's where we found them to be the most useful uh, in, in, a, in a worship uh, environment, um, you know, to, to look at. So take a look at that. But it, it really depends on the structure. You have to kind of have pictures of it to see where you put those things. Next question. Alex 4D Golner from London, England. OpenFX, the open standard for image effect plugins, is used in Blackmagic, DaVinci Resolve, Vegas Pro, Nuke, and Baselight. It was last updated in 2015. Is it still the best API to address when developing cross-app tools for post-production? Alex, what do you think? You know, some things were converted into uh, Latin because they were um, because it was considered a dead language. <laughs> it, it doesn't change. So the advantage of OpenFX right now is that it doesn't change very much because it hasn't been updated since 2015 and it does the thing it needs to do. So I think that's why a lot of these folks um, use it. I, I think that it's probably still a I, unless you think you can think of a better uh, platform. I think it's it seems to be executing um, what it needs to. And so I, I don't know if, if it makes sense to change it unless there's something you can see um that would be better let's go to the next question chester sweeney in las vegas nevada how does the press get those bundles of mic together or really close without feedback uh, Al, uh mitchell mitchell uh, generally, they're not generating any kind of sound or amplification on the other side. Um, it is possible that the mics could affect their pattern slightly when they get all uh, bundled together, and they do it in such a haphazard way. It's amazing they even work at all. 
<laughs> Alex, you want to talk about press coverage? Yeah, yeah. press coverage. <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> uh, you know, so yeah, exactly what Mitchell said. They're not, they're not going, those mics aren't going out to the speakers. There might be one or two of those mics that are. So you might have a, a, in that bundle, you, you'll have the, the house mics that are there. Um, usually they're the ones that are closest uh, to them. You know, they kind of give people space. In um, less organized versions of this, they'll have lots of these these um, these mics that are kind of just set along on the table, and then occasionally they'll work and build these bundles that allow the the press to kind of put them in. I have to admit that I uh, when I do these events for politicians and for other folks that are doing this, I don't give I don't I I, I give the press what's called a malt. So I'm I'm like I'm putting two mics up. And you can have them. <laughs> you know, so, so, the, so we run a malt out. Of, so what we basically run is an audio out. And the press, you know, half the press hates it because they don't have control. And half the press uh, likes it because they don't have to bring mics and manage that process. And so, but we just, I don't ask. You know, like we just put up, you'll, you'll, you'll know people like me because you only see two mics. <laughs> and those two mics are going to come out. Um, and um, <clears throat> they'll come out to the, to the mixer. The mixer then runs that output out to a what's called a malt box. Um, the best malt boxes are running over Dante because then you don't have um, a lot of analog noise on the way out. And then those are those are um, those like it's like 24 outputs of that one thing. And so people can then all plug into those and, and pull that pull it from there. Um, you have to be kind of careful to uh, share make sure that everyone plugging into that box is sharing a ground. Um, and if you don't do that, then they end up, what happens is if you pull power from different parts of the house and you give it to them, it's not sharing ground. You'll hear that typical buzz that you hear in a lot of events. And that's because they're not sharing ground. <laughs> so, so the, uh, so make sure that everything shares the same ground and, and you'll, um, you'll, you usually will get rid of that. And then the other place you get it is power from the cables intermingling. And that's why we like to use things like Dante and fiber and other things to get to the malt box, which is usually not right next to the, to where the mixer is. Yeah, and if you're looking it up on the web, Maltbox, the official name can be Pressbox. So just look in uh, one of the – and places like Marker Tech and other big catalog things will show you examples of them, and they have them for sale. Mitch, you have a comment? Yeah, Marker Tech is a good a source. Uh, Whirlwind makes a lot of great analog malt boxes, and every one of the inputs or outputs have um, uh, transformers on them. So that eliminates the issue of uh, commingling El electrical stuff. Eliminate is a big word. Reduces. <laughs> Reduces the, yeah, severity of. Anyway. One can only hope. Yeah. I'm going to slip to the next question. We're going to have to keep this tight because we're close to our top of the hour. So uh, let's dive in. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. The LG Dual Up 28MQ780 has an innovative new monitor arm and KVM that lets you attach it to your desk and flip the monitor vertically or have two up horizontal inputs. Uh, Jason. I saw this and was thoroughly unimpressed. My immediate thought was, the guys at LG are like, we've got a bunch of weird-looking panels. How can we get people to spend $700 for two 1440p monitors? It, not only is it not innovative, I mean, this is a 32-inch 4K that does quad from LG that I bought several years ago. So, nah, not impressed. Do you remember about how much you paid for that, Jason? Was it, you know, one of the lower bucks, range? Something like that. 500 So, yeah, so it doesn't have to be like a incredible monitor for that kind of task. Mitchell? What they're trying to do is provide vertical real estate. So let's say you're using Premiere or After Effects or any program that has a lot of plugins or uh, tear-off menus. So you can do your uh, concentrate on the video in front of you and then have a monitor to the side that has all the uh, uh, the effects and uh, add-on stuff. So that's kind of where they want it to be. But again, it's very limited. 
Yeah. Um, I have three monitors in front of me, and one of them I have rearranged to be vertical rather than horizontal, and I find it's really useful now in so many circumstances. So I have two horizontal monitors, but that vertical I'm using all the time. I use it for scripts, and I use it for a lot of other things. So that's part and process of setting up your system so it works for you. We are close to the top of the hour now. I wanted to mention a couple of things. The uh, Isadora Lab for this afternoon that typically happens right after our show on Thursday has been postponed. So you'll be coming back next week for El Wilson Sparrow and the rest of that to learn how to use um, Isadora Mimo Lab uh, with Oliver Breidenbach uh, 10 a.m. on Friday, so right after the show there. And again, we appreciate so much all of our audience being involved in the show. Uh, there are, if you want to get to know more about how Office Hours works or you just are interested in the technology behind it and you want to learn, Alex mentioned this earlier and I couldn't agree more. This is an amazing opportunity for people to come in and learn things, so try to get involved as much as you can. Be right back. Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you in our second hour. We, today, we are going to be talking about IBC. Now, I know in an original email we sent out, we were thinking we would be able to get the crew from IBC together here and talk about what was what had gone on at the show. Uh, they still need a little more time to organize kind of the official uh, post analysis and get the entire team in here and talk about what happened. But there was a lot of things to see. IBC is the European, uh, it's not version because it might have been there first and it's just, uh, it's almost as big as NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters show here in America. And from the show floor, it appears as if there's definitely growth happening. Uh, I looked at some of the statistics and they were up uh, maybe fifteen dollars or $20,000 or $20,000 in um, attendees uh, from the last time they did it. So obviously these live shows are coming back and I, from our coverage, which I greatly enjoyed. I watched as much as I could uh, given my regular schedule and it was great to be on the floor of something. The team did a fabulous job and when we have the specific breakdown, we'll go through all of that. Um, so Today, what we're going to do instead of that is just talk through any products, any new announcements, anything that came up in terms of what you saw at IBC. Uh, so anybody who uh, kept track of news feeds, anybody who got emails, uh, what were the topics that you saw at IBC? What impressed you? What do you think the trends are? Sometimes these trade shows are great for that. You walk onto the show floor and you think, why is everybody talking about subject A? And then you start seeing the equipment that's coming out to support subject A and you start to understand why the industry is excited about that. So it's a great way to see kind of trends, overall trends that are happening. Alex, Tell us a little bit about what your feelings were after this IBC. Yeah, a couple of things that I noticed. And first of all, I just want to say how great the coverage was from the IBC team. So they they really did a great job at, at showing us some of the stuff. And some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about are things that we saw them cover. And that's how I knew about it. <laughs> is because uh, and that that's the goal of these teams is to be out there and and showing off these um, um, these systems and so on and so forth. Um, the one of the things I thought was really interesting is the way that um, Black Magic kind of, I, I, you know, I, I want to go back to that because they did an IBC event without being at IBC, so they had a they had a they had a booth at IBC to support people to see it, but they did the 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 um, event whether it was live or kind of live or recorded as live I don't know exactly what they did there, but they released it during IBC and it was 
a great experience. Um, I will say I personally think that they did a better keynote than Apple did last week, you know, head to head. You know, there was more action-packed, more felt more authentic, felt more, you know, I think that, you know, uh, I think that there's something that that they did that really worked there. Um, And they showed us a bunch of new tools and talked about those things. And, you know, that's great. Um, And they had a booth to support that once people knew about it, they had a reason to go over to the booth. Now, I've been doing this for a long time, and I can tell you that the Blackmagic, um, this is a long evolution for Blackmagics. Uh, I've been going to Blackmagic press releases for maybe a decade or more. And they they used to be in a room that was, (laughs) we all stack into this room, and they would list off like, 50 things that were being released. And it was, and it was very dry. <laughs> it was very hard. And it was all stuff we needed to know about because it'd be like a new converter box and a new this and a new that. And, and it would, and, but it was just like, it was a laundry list of things that happened for the press. And it was always on Monday or Tuesday of, of NAB. And it was just brutal, but we all wanted to go because we wanted to see, because there were products that we, that we wanted to use there. Uh, so that was fine. And then it evolved for NAB to behind the Black Magic booth. So the, there's the Black Magic booth, and then hidden behind it is a little studio. And they would do, I think, on Tuesdays typically they would, you know, they would do it, and it was much more of a stagey kind of thing. And Grant would get up and walk us through stuff and and talk about things, and they bring somebody else live up, and and um, and so that was that was the next step of that process. And now they've gone to these video releases, and which are so much better, <laughs> like so much better than all of those other ones. Um, and uh, and and so and what what I here's here's the thing that I found that was really interesting about the Black Magic release that I think is and the reason I'm speaking so much to it is because a lot of us do releases for products and for companies and partners, and we really want to look at what they did there. The pacing was actually better than it felt. Um, sometimes Black Magic feels like they spend a little too much time on things. In this case, they got the pacing right to where if I tried to skip forward, I always felt like I was skipping over something. Oh, no, 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 I have to go back now. Like I was, I was trying to skip through their, their keynote and I found that they had just the right pacing this, this time to, to, that I felt like I just had to watch the whole thing. Like I just, it was, there was enough there that I didn't have to skip through. Um, but the key here is that I don't understand after looking at what they did, I don't understand how or why you would do a um, event at the at the venues, you know, like keynotes at these things don't make sense when you can do them in your own. Uh, if you if you have your own studio to do them in, uh, which they do, um, I think it was genius uh, of how they did it. I think we're going to see more and more of that as we go forward. Um, less keynotes at the at the venues where they it's expensive, it's hard to do well. It looks, you know, very uncomfortable um, and we have to watch it in real time. You know, like all those things are are um, things that are hard. So I think that that's really interesting of what we saw Blackmagic, you know, do there. Um, I think the only thing that I was surprised by by Blackmagic is not a lot of talk about 2110. None, in fact. Like I, I, I was surprised by that. Um, I was surprised that, that they didn't talk at all about 2110 after they got ex- started getting excited about it. And I'm feeling they're kind of... The, so a lot of us immediately go to, well, especially when they release uh, an 80 by 80 SDI router, instead of talking about 2110, you're like, mm, maybe this is going to take longer than we thought. So so I think that was the the tea leaf that, that we read, um, that a bunch of us read into that, into their announcement. Of course, uh, their release of the, I talk, we've talked about it a lot, but the release of the phone app is a... Um, you know, it's incredible impact on the phone production. You know, I think that that's going to be 
Uh, I don't think a lot of people are going to use it. So, so that was there. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting that I didn't know about, this is one of the things about, uh, any, about IBC that I think is interesting is you get introduced to different things that you wouldn't normally see in the United States. Um, one of the ones that I, that I ran into while studying for, you know, getting ready for this is, um, in going through IBC footage is G and D. Um, so this is gdsys.com and they make IP and, and I, you know, I don't know enough about them yet, but they make KVM extenders and KVM switches that, um, are designed to go over IP. And I, and I thought that that was a really, I was, um, you know, I'm not familiar. I use a IHSE are the ones that we use and, uh, right. I-S-H-E. Um, that we that we use uh, mostly in the in the U.S., but these looked really interesting. Here, I'll cut to this. Um, let's see. So this is the you know KVM extenders, you know, and you can see these extenders that, that are here that that will that will um, go over IP. I believe that we can get these to go over you know over a VPN as well. So they have a lot of them here. Um, not something again, something that because of IBC I was looking for and found them randomly. But I think that, I believe that they're out of Germany. Um, we are seeing, and to against what we saw, what we were just talking about, uh, twenty one ten is starting to show up more and more, and 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 boxes that do all of those things. So they do, um, that you know they're they're supporting many NDI and twenty one ten and SRT and and you're seeing more and more companies like uh, you know a variety of them that are that are not putting SDI into their systems. And so that's the beginning of the, <laughs> that's the beginning of the real move when they say, well, because everyone just keeps, hang- I think a lot of people just keep hanging on to, 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 to the SDI. So if you put the SDI in your system, they'll buy it. That's good, but they're not, it's slowing, it's actually slowing down the move to IP. So um, we're seeing more, more companies, especially audio companies, um, Lavo and, and others going to um, just, hey, you can put an ethernet in, that's what we're going to support. Um, I, I thought, I don't know if it's new, but I thought that a lot of the telemetric stuff was interesting around tracking or tracks. So they have these tracks that are both vertical as well as on the floor. Um, and I felt that that was a, they were, they looked, um, they were impressive. Uh, you know, we've, I've used a lot of telemetrics heads in the past. And so, um, they're, they're pretty great. Um, the, the big announcements from vMix, um, is, you know, being able to support, uh, being able to support zoom although it does look like all, all the zoom connections and someone can correct me if i'm wrong is limited to the 30 megs a second you know so it's it, it it appears that when they do zoom it's four four people at a time it doesn't seem like so it still it still feels like what we're doing here is still superior in many ways you know for for what we're doing um to have more but i think that you know, I would say 99% of events have four people or less. <laughs> so, so at a time. So I think that, that I think that it, it, it solves most of those problems. But I think that I didn't, I did notice that that was, that might be the key. There's also more outputs from vMix 27. Um, if other people can throw in things into, you can use for things that you notice, not so much questions, but things that you notice, go ahead and throw those into uh, Mukana. Uh, you can also use the uh, QR code or just go to ask askofficehours.com, but you can throw in things that you noticed that you thought were interesting and we'll bring those up as well. Um, I did like the, I, I know we covered the RCPs uh, from um, uh, the, the new RCPs for Sony FX6 and 9. We covered those inside of our own IBC coverage 
And those look great, you know, for having something that's really built for those doesn't solve the FX3 problem or the FX30 problem or the other other ones, but it does solve uh, FX6 uh, and 9s. So, um, and, and Mitchell's basically telling him he doesn't care because he's got an FX6. Who cares? No, you have an FX3. No, you have an <laughs> yeah, FX3. I want, the, right? I want to know what the problem is. <laughs> I, I, I think it just doesn't have the IP connection. Yeah. Um, I also really thought that the, what, Scarhoy, uh, and again, I'm old enough to remember Scarhoy just being this like weird, clunky little company that was making a couple of things that were kind of wonky, but we used them. And now they're really built, they, they keep on building these better, you know, more and more advanced systems. But the modular ME that you can design how, how the ME works and you can build it out ME by ME, um, I thought was pretty genius. And so I think that that was a really interesting, um, really interesting piece of, of work there. I, I think that there is... I think Scarhoy is the company that could start to really create a mesh of um, uh, switchers that do that can combine switchers and do multiple things and build bigger MEs and so on and so forth. I think that that's something that we haven't seen. I, 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 they haven't shown any of that. But imagine having two constellations that be basically Scarhoy interconnects to make them want an 8ME, you know, uh, constellation, um, you know, that kind of thing where you build some interconnections between the two and they, they serve up. It's not as complicated or hard as it might sound. You know, you, you could definitely do it and you could build some really complex shows uh, with these by combining them and still be less than another, all the other 8ME options. And, and I think Scarhoy, because it only works about on control, it's what I thought about while I was watching our coverage again, the IBC coverage, of Scarhoy, these are some of the things that popped into my head. And finally, we we also covered Mosis, which I thought was great. They added optical trackers um, to support the the tracker trackers um, that they had there. And so again, I thought, and again, I picked up most of those from from our own our own coverage of IBC. But those are some of the things that popped out for me. Um, I don't know if anybody's got anything else. Yeah, and well, and the other thing that I do every time a big trade show comes by, and I look at some of the old paper journalist lists, and uh, TV Technology Forever has been doing the best of shows out of both uh, IBC and NAB. And this year, they released their list of best and show uh, things, and there's a whole bunch of things on there. And as I was reading through it, I was saying to myself, you know, there really is this transition that's still happening between the old media solutions, uh, some of these names I know from from years of coverage of these things. There are some names that everybody knows, AJA's in there, uh, Clearcom, uh, all the way down. And, and some of them are the older names like Ross that's been in broadcast forever, Everts. Uh, but it's interesting to see the transition from the traditional things. I mean, Zixi's at the bottom of this list. And so you can see that they're trying to push into that, but they're also at the same time kind of stuck in the old PR system of here are the big companies who have big announcements and they're trying to get in here. Uh, I Down here at the bottom, uh, there was a note about Amazon Web Services and the Elemental link, and, you know, they're excited about that. And I'm so I'm happy to see those kind of things that are more uh, video and transport for the web, because we use that here at Office Hours, and a lot of people all over the world use that. The Radio World, which is an, a, an associated publication of theirs, you can just see that they're really kind of still in the broadcast era. I don't see the really cool new high-end technology. Um, there's some Telos stuff in there and, you know, other names like Wheatstone that was around for decades of consoles and broadcasters. And I just, in, in those things, I'm not seeing them make that transition into the new era. 
Of interest, though, for me also was this Best in Show Award, which came out for the uh, something called Luvio, which is, I guess, uh, one of the aggregators. And they're trying to look ahead and see where broadcast is going. Uh, this is a kind of... Uh, they call it a content fabric, and they're trying to build a new system out there for people to do individual pieces of video or large companies to do individual pieces of video, put them up for download, and have an entire back-end process of tracking and everything else. They called this the best in the entire show for IBC this year, uh, and they've got some contracts here. Warner Brothers is on board. I think Fox is on board. Uh, people like Dolly Parton's network uh, are trying this out as a new distribution system. So you can see that everybody's taking this new world that's coming and they're taking it seriously, but nobody quite knows how it's going to shake out. There's some very big money pursuing this idea of all media migrating to the web and how are the connections going to be made between the individual consumer of this new content and the entire infrastructure of production and distribution that is you know they're they're trying to find pathways in my opinion around the old system because they know that the old system of transmitters on top of mountaintops which still exists but they can see the future and it's coming over the horizon toward them and it is not something that's going to be easy any easier for the people at the top to navigate than the people at the bottom. It's going to be, I would really be fascinated at being able to time machine 20 years in the future and see what content distribution looks like because this is to me a clear shot across the bow of it's all going to change. And the big guys are having as much trouble navigating what this change will look like as the smaller folks who just produce things kind of. Mitch, did you have anything else you wanted to say or was that comment really what you wanted to get in on? No, I um, actually, you stated it very well. I just wanted to make a comment about my friends at Sony. Um, I'm always very interested what they're going to do because the one thing that they say, if you own a Sony, don't be disappointed. They'll have something new in the next three to four months. Uh, they announced a new camera at IBC, the Burano, which uh, John Preto has nicknamed the Burrito. Uh, so uh, what's interesting about that camera is where does it fit into their ecosystem? Uh, is it between the FX9 and the uh, the Venice 2? They're not selling a lot of Venice 2s right now. And guess what? The FX9 is sort of falling off, uh, uh, off sales also in rentals. Um, it's the FX6 that seems to be. So maybe this Burano is supposed to somehow replace the FX9 and be somewhere in the middle. But I watch all these things very carefully to see how they position it. Um, as far as the uh, uh, the broadcast uh, uh, interest uh, at, at, at these events is that, as Alex said earlier in the show, broadcasters are kind of turning into social media casters. And uh, the whole idea of making that transition, I think, is hurting a lot of companies and, and confusing them. So it, you need to watch very carefully to see how they're making that transition, because most broadcasters are, fa frankly, hunkering down. So their their finances are a bit more, especially radio, um, are holding on to the, uh, the amount of money they have. And by the way, Wheatstone is doing just fine. Yeah, I don't surprise it. You know, I think they had to really lean into the burrito thing. And, you know, their next version should be like Chili Verde and Carne Asada. Taco. And I, yeah, they just have to go there. That's where the that's where the, the younger part of the market wants them to go. Burrito's much easier than Barana. John Preto, your thoughts? I just, this is my first uh, exposure to the Alluvio stuff. I'm reading their white paper right now. Boy, this sure looks gimmicky to me. It's like, 
we need some jargon. We need a blockchain and we need some NFTs and throw it on top of broadcast. <laughs> I so thought exactly I'm the same thing as I read super, through it. <laughs> super skeptical on on this product. I'll read more about it and, and give you some ideas in the future. And just for those of you who are not used to press release kind of these rankings and, and hot technologies, uh, there is a direct correlation sometimes between uh, advertising dollars spent and what gets into lists and things like that. But it sounds like this might be a consortium of really well-heeled people at the top saying, hey, this disruption is happening if we invest a ton of money and can kind of convince people that we're the big player, maybe it'll work out real big. And they're signing those deals with celebrities and other things to kind of try to get a little more cachet to that. They're not working down here in the trenches of the technology. It, it feels to me, now maybe they're hiring people who do, but it seems like they're trying to force the market in a direction that, that would benefit them as opposed to really watching what the market wants and trying to fill those needs. But that's personal for me. I may be totally wrong about it. I think that takes care of our initial questions. Remember, get your questions in. We have a good little group, but let's start with the next one, Mitch. Next one in from Alex 4D Golner in London. Any Final Cut Pro talk at IBC at booths or in conversation? Alex. You know, I I, uh, I, I, have, I I wasn't there, so I don't know about the booths and, and, and those conversations there. But what I will say is that it is... A, a little worrisome. We'll see what happens at the summit and whether they show more things at the summit or get get things. I think that Apple's um, doesn't really follow the same TikTok that everybody else does when they release things and talk about them. So I think that Apple's kind of typically on the tail end of their release schedule that we're not really seeing a lot of new things. And so I think that the talk that most of the talk that I hear about Final Cut right now and what I did hear yet last week into other discussions was really around the support for the like how big of a deal it was to support the i the new iPhones. It's really interesting that they ran all the releases. I mean, they fixed a couple other things while they were doing the release, but all the releases that you saw with Compressor, uh, Ocean, Final Cut this week um, were all uh, pointed towards the uh, iPhone support, and that, that's just a really I think that's what caught everybody's attention is that Apple is actually doing a lockstep you know, with their phones to their, um, to their main editing package. So that, that's, that's the thing that we, that we heard the most over the last two weeks. And with the penetration they have in phones, the cachet they have in phones to do anything else other than extend that ecosystem as far as possible. I mean, I, I like a lot of other people for the past three or four years have migrated more and more to shooting the work that I get paid for on my phone rather than on larger cameras. It was a, for both myself and my clients, it was a bit of a, are you sure you're going to just use that? And I, I absolutely agree that in the first part of this, um, it was very difficult to get acceptance from clients about shooting something on a phone. When I were, it was able to show them the work that I was able to do out of that for one of my clients, they went, well, this doesn't look that different than the work you do. And I said, no, and you're seeing more variety in shots because it's more agile. In fact, I, famously to a street fair that uh, one of my clients who was sponsoring, I took both my Blackmagic 6K and my iPhone, and I did the first two shots with a 6K, and I just realized it wasn't going to work in that crowded, crazy environment. It was too difficult 
to mount and execute shots in a crowded environment. So I switched to my monopod with the iPhone and had a great next two days of capturing all sorts of fascinating shots because I was more mobile and more agile. And when I came back and put that HDR footage into my Final Cut timeline, I was like, whoa, this stuff looks fabulous. And so it was just a movement for me. Yeah, I think that when I do training, I do it all I, for years, for the last five years, when I do training videos where I, where a lot of stuff wants to be still in focus and, and I, you know, you, you want to, um, and I want to move fast. I always use my phone. Like it, it has been for the last three or four versions or something about, I think 10 or 11 phone, 10 or 11, it, it reached some point where I was like, oh, I should just use my phone to do this. And, right. um, definitely as we got to version 12, which I, you know, um, which was 2020, um, at that point I was shooting everything, all training videos with my phone. And, and I think that nowadays you're really getting this incredible color representation and uh, frame rates, uh, you know, uh, resolution, all of those things are coming together. And when it first came out, I know with the 12, I first started shooting, it was HEVC and I was like, mm. <laughs> like, that, like shoot a bunch of clouds Maybe. or a bunch of, or the ocean or whatever. And you're like, mm, that's not going to work. So, uh, so now that the, the support of these, and now that we're going to log support and all these other things that, uh, that are there, I think that it's just a great production tool. Um, again, I, mm, there are definitely places where I want to use real cameras, you know, that are, that are, um, you know, that are dedicated. I can shade them. They fit into a larger pipeline. They do all these other things. But as a run and gun, you know, whether it's new in news gathering, and this is, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, but this is the, as a news gathering device, as a training device, as a, you know, capture the events that don't need to be all short depth of the field. It's, it has really become an entirely different, uh, you know, uh, input device that, that works exceptionally well. Absolutely. Mitchell, thoughts? Uh, since the uh, grumpy old man Chris is not here just yet, uh, I'll fill in for him. Uh, shooting with uh, your iPhone for professional video, I, I really have problems with that. I have problems because it's like the early days of desktop publishing. Um, it put in the hands of people uh, a lot of power uh, to really mess up and not understand the basic rules of shooting and the quality of the work that's being done, um, unless it's family photos or things that are convenient, um, I have a feeling that it's suffering. I think the quality of, of production is suffering by using your iPhones. I, I know this is a Luddite point of view, yeah. but um, I, I just don't think that it's, uh, it's as good as a crew that knows what they're doing, that's doing something very, that's craft worthy and uh, we went through this 20 years ago i haven't cut a ruby list since i was 25 years old and that's how all the ads used to get done and then over the course of five years none of them were getting done that way you know there may come this this inflection point where you know what we think now from the traditions just doesn't hold anymore alex go ahead pile on when i was uh (laughs) When I was 22 years old, I, I, I was an intern at Prime Sports Network, and um, I uh, had a little Mac that they used to send out emails that said, thank you, you won. And I it happened to have Quark Express and Photoshop and Illustrator on it. And so I um, I went out and I bought books at the Tattered Cover in, in Cherry Creek, and I, and I, every, and I would constantly be... Um, trying to learn how to use this thing, this, this thing called Photoshop and Quark and everything else. And I would send ads to my... Um, uh, I would send ads to the ad director of like, why don't we use this? And why don't we do this? And why don't we do this? And he would just be like, no, no, no. And, uh, and uh, you gotta get, I was 22 years old. I had no training. I was just kind of fiddling through all of this stuff. I was getting paid $3 and 75 cents an hour to do it. And, uh, as an intern and, um, and 
there was one day where I handed it to him and he goes, oh, that looks pretty good. And the, the, the office manager came and said, I've been g- given a budget of $15,000 for you to build up your, um, you know, to, for you to have a scanner and a printer and a thing and, a, you know, and a computer. And it had to be a PC, which was part of my current hatred of PCs was dealing with it uh, because every, every, uh, every, it was a PC and every um, service bureau that you used was all Mac. So it was the inter- interaction between those two was not the best. Uh, but but the point is, is that I had no idea what I was doing. I made a lot of ads that if I look back on them now, I would never make again. Um, I did all those things. And, you know, people had said exactly what Mitchell said, because there were Cytex operators and there were professional and I you got to get when they bought me that system, they fired their ad agency. They decided that they, it was not whether it was better or the same as the ad agency. It was that it, they couldn't see the difference <laughs> you know, as a client. They, they, they were like, ah, it's good enough. And, um, and so I just kept on growing, uh, you know, and, and that allowed me to kind of grow what I did. And, and the thing is, is that the nineties were definitely what we're seeing now in print, which is that suddenly, all of us had access to it and, and you could, and, you know, any computer could do this. And it went from the stodgy, you know, well-heeled, well, you know, designers to a bunch of us kids that just didn't know what we were doing, but were just banging on it. And we ended up with magazines like Ray Gun, which were completely unreadable. And, and, um, but what came out of it was a different level of creativity, you know, and a much larger and actually a much larger market. And I think that we're seeing some of that, um, I, you know, to sometimes to, to detriment, I, I actually think that, uh, TikTok was better when it wasn't so refined. <laughs> it's gotten, you know, to a lot of things that are that are that are more designed, and I'm like, oh, it's not. As, there's something. There's some authenticity that got lost. But if we look at the way YouTubers are building their videos now, I mean, and a lot of them have built up. I mean, they're using Reds and they're using Black Magics and they're using Sony's and they're using big cameras to do a lot of these things. And so they're not. Um, but they didn't start that way. They started with little cameras, and I think that we're seeing this kind of the next generation kind of emerging out of all of this. And I think the phone, the structure of the phone is changing how we're shooting this stuff. And, and I see it, again, I've talked about it in the last couple of weeks. News organizations are just piling on, you know, to, to using phones as production. And I can't see the difference. Like when you watch the, when you watch the, um, the end product for disposable content that only lasts for a little while, um, I think it's, it's, it's all just, it, it's working out pretty well. Yeah, and in desktop publishing, we had the ransom note period where people getting a hold of 30 fonts, use 30 fonts on the same document. But over the course of the next couple of years, it settled down. It takes we, some time for we people were, to learn these things. Through through proper amounts of shame and ridicule, ridicule we were able to curb those bad habits into something <laughs> much more refined. <laughs> you know what I like to say is that what used to take millions of dollars, thousands of square feet, and hundreds of people can be done by one person in their garage. Yes. That's changed yeah. the business paradigm. It is just a reality we're having to deal with. It's not the same industry that it was three years ago. It's just not. It's changing that fast. Chris, you had some thoughts. Yeah, I mean, this is a story that gets told over and over and over and over again. You know, uh, painters thought photography was, was cheating, right? And I can remember the transition in the 80s from tube cameras to chip cameras. And every professional I knew, every Mitch that I knew said, nobody will ever use a chip camera. They're crap. The, the picture's flat. It has no life to it. It has to be a tube. Well, look at us now. And, and, now, the last and, now, time? and now you can point at the sun. 
<laughs> yeah, and now you can point at the sun. I, so, do you remember? Before we could hardly point at a candle. <laughs> I know, it's like, well, if you pointed at the sun with a two camera, remember when like, you, oh, you're dead. Remember you when you had to that. burn it in by shooting a white card and move yeah. the camera? Anyway, yeah. so, but, 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 you know, we'll, we'll never edit on, on computers, you know, yeah. tape, tape. You can pry my AB roll suite out of my cold, dead fingers, or, right? Or, or the film, the film editor saying, "Well, there's a certain uh, pace to it that gives it a, that gives it, a, you know, allows you to think about the shot, and, and there's right. a lot of work and everything." Working else that painfully makes that work. slow is good for some reason. So yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this is these are all <laughs> stories that are getting told over and over and over again. I would say, and and you know, I I remember back when I was podcasting like a decade ago. And there was a there was a point in the phone camera. I can't remember when it was, like iPhone four or five, six, whatever. Right? I said, I think this is going to be the best camera ever. You know, and and I think that this is the best camera. This is my favorite camera. It is far and away my favorite camera. I will never buy another DSLR three four thirds, whatever, I will never buy another real camera. Also, I will never own a video camera with tubes in it. <laughs> I will never own, I, I, will never, I will never buy another video camera with tubes in it. Come on. And look, at all, look at all of the, you know, and, and we still have a few of them, you know, uh, Oppenheimer guy, whatever his name is, who directed Oppenheimer? What's his name? Well, so that that's a different thing because the, the, film, well, is the film is higher resolution. I mean, it's a different thing. Like it's yeah. it's still 18K. And I'm not sure I've seen there'll anybody be an 18, film. There'll, there'll be an 18K video camera chip thing. Yeah. It'll happen. And maybe somebody will use it to fill an IMAX screen. Not quite yet, but we can see the, the trends in chip density and the rest of that. It's still, you know, this has been, I agree, 100%. It's been going on forever. It will continue to go on forever. The, the, the magic in this for me is figuring out when to move, when to watch, and when to change. And uh, I've, I, I just... I think the pace of change has accelerated. We used to, I used to buy it, you know, I bought my first shoulder-mounted serious big boy camera with you know big lenses where the lens cost a third of the whole camera and I got 10 years out of that. I don't think that's possible anymore. I think two or three years is probably the max, I would think. Um, you know, maybe if you buy a high-end red and that's where you live, you can get five or ten years out of that. But you just know that the next sensor, the next set of capabilities, the next something is coming along to mean that you have to flip that into something else. Mitchell? Uh, yeah, Mitch. Yeah, do you think electronic calculators made better mathematicians out there? Are people better at math? I think they just... Uh, yes. It, no, they yes. made it faster to solve the same problems. Here's the point. Here's the point they made is them that when we make camera shooting easy, we forget that there's good ways to shoot and bad ways to shoot. And uh, people are forgetting that because they now have, they've passed the test. They can go right out and shoot it. Same thing with a calculator. Well, the under, one thing counterpointed that is you can shoot with the best camera in the world badly and you will not look as good as somebody who shoots better. I mean, it's like uh, you give me a Bosendorfer, I am not a good piano player. I'm the same piano player I was before with much better sounding notes, but it's still terrible music. So I don't think we'll ever get away from needing the skills to do what we do. It is it's the art side of it rather than the technology Agreed. side of it. Agreed. I wouldn't bet a big, I wouldn't bet against that ever. Uh, 
But I did notice, I mean, John Preto's piece that he published just the other day, uh, yesterday was it? You can see the influence of YouTube on those things, and it makes it more interesting. And the and the 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 poster frame for it made me feel really comfortable in line the way I saw it come by because that's what I'm used to seeing. If he hadn't done those little things to put his piece of work out in the the thing so it's acceptable, I mean, it's not that he was following old standards; it was he was paying attention to the new visual and marketing standards and everything else, and making it putting it on a level where the entire mass market who expects that stuff could understand it. that That's the same as broadcast was, just in the new era of online. Found it fascinating. Good job. Let's move on to the next question. Back to IBC. John Preto, Las Vegas, asks, after someone mentioned it yesterday, I was hoping to see more details on the NDI 6. Anyone have more details? And speaking of John Preto, here you go. Yeah, somebody mentioned it on Office Hours yesterday, and I scoured the web and found nothing. And just put your name on this list, and you'll be the first to know. I, did they say anything at, at IBC? I didn't see anything. So I guess nobody that we know particularly uh, glommed onto that. These trade shows, they have so many white papers and so many things, but um, and it sounds like what's coming. Let's go to the next question. From Lucas Herzog in Mainz, Germany, Avid showed a preview of an internal Atmos renderer in Pro Tools with support for mixed downs, binaural rendering, and more. Are the times of external Atmos rendering over, at least for home entertainment? And Alex? I think for home entertainment, it could be. I think that the, you know, that, that's definitely been the direction that, uh, that, or the Dolby's going is trying to get make it a lot easier for people to support it and for people to roll it out. Uh, for cinema, you still need the renderer. Like it's not it's not something that that you can um, just do at home. But but I think that uh, for the um, the smaller productions, and I think that's exciting that that you can do um, some of those things um, without without the complexity that the, the renderer brought. Mitchell. It's interesting to see Avid throw a lot of support behind developing Pro Tools versus their own Avid app because not a lot's been going on with the uh, Avid improvements. It, it, don't you think it's time that they well, just... Avid is the... Pro, uh, Avid is the... <laughs> they own Pro Tools. So I know, I but I'm saying Avid Media Composer. It seems like they don't spend as much time dealing with that. Maybe they should split them up and you know, deal with them separately. I, I, Were I they think just acquired? They were acquired by a company that will, they, they were acquired by an investment company. So they'll either yeah. be diced into little pieces or they'll go after more companies to build. So when a when an investment company comes in, usually they're going to take it one of two directions. They're going to uh, cut it up into little pieces and sell it for more than the whole, or they're going to go out and buy more companies and try to build it into a larger system. And I don't think we know which way they're going yet. But but I think that the problem is, is that what are you going to add <laughs> to the Avid system? Like it does what it needs to do inside of the pi- inside of the pipeline that it's in. Um, I think that it's they they make they have to move very slowly. This gets back into something we talked about earlier. You make minor changes in that interface, and then people stop using it. You know, they what they the only thing Avid has to worry about is creating a decision event for users. And so, if they make any major change to Avid, uh, any major interface change or whatever, they're going to put the editors in Hollywood into a decision tree and they're trying to keep him out of that tree at all costs, you know, because that's the only reason that Avid is still around is because people aren't, don't want to get out of that um, decision. People are in that decision tree uh, or not in that decision tree. They're just like, well, the Avid does what it needs to do. So you have to make sure that you, you're looking for things that need to be fixed 
from that from that group and you're making sure you're not falling behind on something that they need. Um, but right now they're, they're not asking for anything new or they're not asking for very much new. They're not looking over the hill at, at Resolve and saying, why don't we have this or whatever there. And so you kind of add things very, very slowly and very carefully because you don't want to create a system by which they go, oh, I w- what should I be using? Because that's the only thing they have left right now. And of the Avid suite, Pro Tools is clearly the crown jewel. It has such amazing penetration everywhere. So the value of what they bought, it's like this thing and then everything else. Well, and... and, and and this gets into the the risk that that um, that Mitchell's talking about, which is that the, the the company that's really coming up around Avid is Resolve, because a lot of pipelines are already using Resolve. When you finish working in an Avid, a lot of them are sending their stuff to Resolve, and they're constantly reminded when they go into that that oh, there's all these other tools that they could be using. Um, a lot of those tools still don't have the same integration that. Avid and Pro Tools have. So even between, even in fair, in the Fairlight window, um, there's still tools that people want to use that are still in Pro Tools. But, but the number of engineers and the amount of development and trying to close that loop, the, the thing that I think that Final Cut is something that we see a lot in social. We see a lot in people who need to move fast um, and people who, you know, I still use it for things that I need to turn over quickly. But like I had a technical edit that I had to do two days ago or, yeah. And I took that into resolve. <laughs> like, you know, like, like this is a technical edit. I've got a bunch of, I've got a whole bunch of channels. I've got a bunch of things that have to be done very carefully. And that was the right solution. And I think that that is the, um, that's the real danger to pro, to pro tools and to Avid is where resolve goes and if they can keep on tying those bits and pieces together. Um, but it's still probably years, years away. Interesting discussion. Let's move to the next question. Idris Hodge from Fairfax, Virginia. What do you think about the Blackmagic camera app? Alex. We've already talked about it a little bit. It's pretty revolutionary. Um, you know, it, cool. it is a, I mean, it is a free app, which is just devastating for everybody who's been trying to sell memberships and other things. And, you know, all these, I mean, you know, all those, uh, the, the, the subscriptions and everything else, that's all going to be in trouble because this app is doing all those things. The more important thing is, is that this app is tying back into um, Resolve. So if you're cutting, if you're shooting it, it's keeping all the metadata and everything else it needs to to send back to Resolve to be used later. So it's, it, I think that the reason that they're doing this, the, the phone builds a support structure for Resolve. If you're deciding you're going to shoot on your phone, which the phones are getting better and better, it's the easiest place to send it from that app is Resolve. It doesn't still copy it to your to your iPhone, um, uh, to your to your uh, film strip or whatever for to go into photos, and so you can use it in other things. It doesn't. I think it does. It doesn't send it to photos. No, it's a it's a it's a it appears to be a hard choice. You can save it locally. Mm-hmm. You can save it in the app. You can save it in the app and in photos, or you can send it to Resolve. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I haven't actually sent it to resolve as you can understand, but, um, the reason I had my hand raised is you can also, you can send it to other places as well. It doesn't have to go only to a resolve bin. And I'll just say, <clears throat> and Bill, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing your opinion on this as an editor. Do you like the idea of clips just magically appearing in your bin? 
without without the fact that you actually put them there or you decided which bin to put them in or you are cognizant of the fact that oh new media is showing up generally speaking if i'm shooting it i'm oh i'm cautiously okay with it if i have other people contributing into that no yeah, because the that's, time that's it what takes I'm... to prune out the junk is way more than the time it takes to create the work. Yeah, the way it currently works, Alex, is you you hard decide send my clip to my resolve bin, which means when but you can define which bin, right? You can define that this is like incoming. Yeah, you, know, but you so... have to select before you're shooting. Right, yeah, but yeah. you you could build it like I'm going to do a thing. I'm I'm going to build a resolve project for this. And then I'm going to set the bin that I want new stuff to come into. Now, I have to admit, I tend to be a little folder heavy. So I'll, I tend to go, I'm going to have, as soon as something comes into general, I place it in a folder that it belongs right. inside of that. Agreed. So for me, what would happen is, is I, I would either create, I, I, don't, I haven't tried this yet, but I would create a bin that I flow it into, or I would let it just dump into the main bin. And when I see them appear, I just start sorting them and throwing them into yeah. where they need to go. And so that's the, and that gets into the advantage of having, you know, with the Blackmagic Cloud, um, the advantage that you have is you could have an assistant editor sitting there looking at, like, so if we look at using this, and we may, for the NAB coverage, the, the advantage that you have there is that you're dumping all that stuff in. You have one person throwing it into folders and another person going through and just grabbing those folders and editing them. And that's a, I think that's a really fascinating um, puzzle. Uh, right now, the idea of from phone direct to cloud, which Blackmagic is exclusive in right now, if that opens up and some iteration of the iPhone or some announcement says from your phone, you can upload these files, whether you use that or a different app into a iCloud type of service or Altheon, who we've had on, mm -hmm. who are definitely playing in this space or others so that you have the advantage of local record, but option to do exactly what Blackmagic is doing option of doing up to the cloud and then collaborative editing based on that, it really could be a game changer if everybody it, can do that. And hopefully other companies will jump onto it. I think the real thing is, is that they're making it suddenly really easy. So I could see, for instance, news gathering, it, you know, really huge, changes huge really potential. quickly. If you send a bunch of people out with iPhones, the, the, there's a couple things there is that it doesn't look like much. People are just shooting with their phones. If you pick up a big camera and you start, you throw it over your shoulder and start covering an event, you get a lot more attention and sometimes unwanted attention. If you're just picking up your cell phone, you may not. Um, and so that stuff can be, you could be feeding massive amounts of information in from, let's say, a protest or or any kind of news event or a concert. I mean, if you think about the auto, you know, auto syncing and everything else using audio, you know, people going to a Taylor Swift show from like eight different angles and shooting with their phones and having it just feeding back into, <laughs> into a system that is, um, you know, and if they just hit stop, start between songs, you know, they, they just are keep you, you, you could be having edit done by the end of the show that looks pretty good. <laughs> Plus so, they all have so a proxy you know, final workflow. So yeah. the proxies can go up to the cloud super fast. Right. Editorial people can look at that, start assembling, and as the final files, which are much bigger, hit the cloud, they're substituted, and suddenly you're working with original media. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a pretty interesting, and again, it's suddenly as Mitch was talking, lamenting on the last question or the last comment, is that suddenly everybody has something that is not very expensive to build something very complex, you know, and so I think that. Uh, it'll take people a little time just by itself as a as a great little phone app on your on your iPhone. It's going to be great, but now you have all these people learning how to use this new phone app that is very uh, feature rich, but free, 
Um, so they're all, and, and then it's, it's as a loss leader for, for black magic to draw people into their phones, their, uh, editing system, everything else. It's pretty okay. genius, pretty genius, you know, and Chris, I think that I saw you, I saw that. you anxious. Well, uh, yeah, uh, what I was going to say is, and this goes back to what we were just talking about as technology improves and makes our job easier, the best way to protect your job to just be better. And the be best way to get better is to do it. <laughs> so you got to yeah. get out there and start using it. Be better. Yeah. Absolutely. I can't, couldn't agree more. It's going to be your ability, not what you're holding in your hand, that's going to make the difference between great content and okay content. Nothing wrong with that. You know, if you, if you find yourself in something where what's in front of you is so compelling that you don't have to be a great camera person to succeed with that and, and get a lot of hits and the rest of that. But, Day-to-day, the professionals who know how to work these things will have more utility the more they know. Jason, you had a last thought before we move on? Yeah, just a last thought. Um, I'm reminded of a professor of mine in college who said that there is no such thing as theoretical practice. I like that. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You've got to you've got to actually do it and upload it and run into all the problems and solve them before you're going. Let's get to the next question. Sharif and Oman ask, in the recent vMix 27 beta release, how will the integration capabilities with Zoom uh, going to be improved? Does it support 1080p resolution? Additionally, what is the maximum number of remote guests it can accommodate? Uh, do you know enough about vMix 27's beta, Alex? I, I, from what I've read and what we what we covered and talked about on our own IBC coverage, it does look like it it is a 30 meg still in the 30 meg limit. I don't think it's in the 100 meg right now, um, and so I think it's limited to four at the moment. I think that that's going to change. I think over time uh, we're going to see a wider support for that. Um, you know, and, and I think it'll go up to the 100 meg, and I think it'll be a lot better. But I do think it's going to be a big improvement over the vMix call, which. It doesn't look like they're getting rid of. They're, this is just Zoom. They're adding to it. But the VMix call is quirky. <laughs> good, good word, quirky. Uh, next it's question. the nicest way I can think of it. How to say it. <laughs> uh, next next up, Lucas Herzog from Mainz, Germany. Uh, Riedel has this little affordable IP intercom named Punctum. Until now, it was wired, Ethernet only. They released a smartphone app for wireless access. Huge improvement. Punctum, P-U-N-Q-T-U-M. Great job of reading that question. <laughs> I had never heard that term before. Uh, Alex? Uh, yeah, so this is something that, you know, obviously we, we use in Unity. Uh, Clearcom has their own agent IC. Um, and then Riedel's, Riedel's mobile app was horrible like just horrible like they had one for a while but it was just completely not useful like they didn't care about it at all and and so uh so they they have made this more available i looked at some of the screenshots i obviously haven't used it um yet in the system uh i i would still rank um looking at it it's a big jump for readle users um but i would still rank clearcom as the uh, as the best one, then Unity, then Riedel, and then I, I haven't seen the RTS one. Um, for a long time, the RTS one was rough around the edges last time I saw it. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, so those are the, you know, like, so those are the ones that I would, that, that I would look at there. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, with SRT now in the web presenter, do you think we'll see HEVC support and 8K? Uh, John Preto. Not, not with the current hardware. HEVC is MPEG is uh, H.265, which requires additional licensing for for encode on the encoding side. 
and certainly the hardware in there won't support HK. So I don't expect to see anything on that existing hardware. Alex, yeah, I I uh, I, I do think it's interesting to see how much. Uh, Blackmagic is supporting SRT. I think we're going to see that throughout the entire system as we as we go forward. So it's pretty cool. Next question and uh, the last one, unless we get another one popping in. Neil Avalito from Boca Raton, Florida. Is there a new method for utilizing webcams with the ATEM Mini? Jason Beach. Unless I really miss something, nope. Yeah, I think that's always been a difficulty. All of us who have HMI delivered camera feeds, uh, we can use the A10 minis without blinking an eye, but it's always been difficult to get a web camera into it. We've all looked for things since the first days of office hours and so far haven't found an easy way. Alex? It does feel like in the same way that some of the switchers in the past that Blackmagic had were HDMI and SDI, kind of a hybrid between the two. It does feel like they could have they could put in like a four or five a four input of of usb and four input of of hdmi i don't think it really solves a lot of our key issues though because with the new ptz's what we're really interested in is full control so we need pass-through control from the software and that's hard right now next question next one in from douglas carmichael when do you think we'll see a one to two me constellation 4k Alex? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw them release those before the next NAB. So I don't, uh, not not the New York NAB, maybe edit New York NAB, but I would say by next, I think that they're kind of moving past just releasing lots and lots of small things and starting to move back into some of the bigger things. And so I think we should keep our eye on it. I think that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a release, not at, but before uh, the April NAB. And we had one more question come in, so let's... Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. AJA had a busy IBC 2023 with the introduction of several new products and updates, including the ultra-low latency Kona XIO card, HDR image analyzer version 3.0 update, and the new 12G SDI open gear audio and HDMI conversion solutions. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, the one that I, of course, I probably tracked the most was the HDR um, Image Analyzer 3.0 update. So it's it's really adding a lot of features. And when we t- we talked about scopes in the past, and I was remiss to not mention that that one's there. It's just expensive. That's a twenty thousand um, dollars, you know, analyzer. We had a special second hour on that with AJA in the past, so you can probably go go back and in, into our archives and and find that. And a couple of last minute entries. Uh, next question. From Talalik Lopez Waterman in Norfolk, Virginia, my show is becoming affected by immigration issues. Could talk through a good way to send a monitor feed from the Blackmagic uh, uh, Design 6K and also record appropriately on camera. Sorry, not IBC. Um, we got Jason and Alex. Jason? Yeah, I would just use um, you know one of the Blackmagic screens, and it'll just straight pass through. And um, the newer ones will will record. I'm blanking on the name of the model from uh, from ATEM, but I'll leave that to Alex. Alex, yeah. So the way we've done it in the past is we use a Mac Mini M1. Uh, we use the the Bluetooth software from Blackmagic to control the camera, and then we feed the camera's output back into a into Zoom. So that camera's back there, but we still have control of the camera. We also sometimes have a, uh, you know, um, we've in the past had Wingman with a, a Mix Pre 3, so we can control that as well. It just records. That has worked really well for us. So basically we can change all the settings on the camera. We can't change the LUT 
I would little, I don't quite understand why, but anyway, we can't change the light, but we can change everything else. Um, and then we can hit record on the camera, but we're also getting audio and video back into it via Zoom to, to watch through it. And that's the way we've done it in the past. It's worked pretty well. Uh, next question. And next question is rolling in slowly but surely uh, from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Discuss the new Canon PTC introduced at IBC, the CRN100. Alex. Yeah, I believe this is a smaller, less expensive uh, version of um, of this. And I just missed, I'm just going to grab onto that there. But this is, I think that this is going down, um, down market rather than up market. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, having a little technical problem on my end. This, uh, um, sorry. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I have to admit that the 500, is the yeah this is going down market there's a smaller chip size um that's there uh, it is 4k um so that's you know but it is a um i believe it yeah it's a one over 2.3 cmos so kind of halfway between a one half and one third inch sensor uh, it's only two thousand dollars so it, it it also supports uh, hdmi ip and us video usb video out so you could use it theoretically as a webcam <laughs> so but at two thousand dollars i'd still rather be using the camera that i'm using now over over that it's not a ptc um but I'd, but i'd rather you know i think that the larger sensors i think people have to be, need to put larger sensors in <laughs> that's you know that i think we should really be thinking about one inch sensors as the minimum size uh to put into a ptc that of quality i think we have to stop we have to give up on these little these tiny little sensors they just look really junky it just looks very it looks like it all looks like webcams until you get to about one inch and then it starts to look better and then as you go up to full frame it looks better and better and better and i think that um i think that the i i i think we need to stop supporting the market <laughs> below that other than for webcam i mean if it's sub 500 dollars, i totally make sense but as you start going over that i mean sony is making 800 dollars cameras with um with super 35 sensors uh, so i think people need I, I think that that it makes such a big difference that I don't, I wouldn't go below Super Super 35 now. Next question. Rian Smith from Trinidad, West Indies. How would you level brightness and colors between three PTZ optics type PTZ cameras running into an extreme mini? Alex. Um, it depends on what they, you know, the, the PTZ optics has their own shading. Um, so the problem really with PTZ optics from the last time I've used them, which has been a couple years, is that their controls are pretty crude. So you really have to um, look at how to control them. And um, oftentimes you need to get them in a controlled environment. The good news is they're all the same. They don't have different lenses. Um, so if you can get them all to exactly the same settings, they should be pretty pretty close. And, and what's dangerous is actually to, the temptation is always to, white balance them, um, you know, uh, individually. And the real problem there is that you, uh, they will all be a little different then. It's actually harder to keep them all the same if you do a, a, a kind of an auto white balance against a white card. So you want to set all those settings manually. You can take the auto white balance and get a sense of what it thinks it should be and then use it. But you want to set those manually on each camera because it'll start doing the, a lot of its um, coloring and shading uh slightly different for every camera so you actually end up with less matching than you thought you would have the other option is to really nail this and spend but you have, it's time consuming is you can't put LUT boxes in between uh, them and the and the switcher and then you apply LUTs to each one of those to, to match them and that's where you're going to get you're going to get more out of that camera than that than the manufacturer understood um, that you could get out of that camera uh, if you use the LUTs but it but you should for three cameras you should probably 
it's a half a day to, to get it to get it just right. Thank you all for being here today and participating in Office Hours. Uh, tomorrow, interesting show. Uh, co-founder of LiveX, Corey Benke, will show us the live streaming broadcast tools that he is involved with to help you control, route, monitor, live stream, ultra low latency from anywhere in the world. He's going to discuss his tool uh, for vMix and NDI in the cloud workflows, as well as discussing working integrations with Panasonic's Kairos cloud switchers. Alex, is there anything else you want to note about him before we uh, finish things up. Corey and I are old friends. We're, I'm really excited to have him on. <laughs> so it should great. be uh, uh, should be a great uh, Friday. Okay. Our traditional thanks very much, and we are very serious about that, to everybody who's involved in putting this show on every day, to our producers, those of you who uh, put questions in. It was a lively discussion, and you came through, as always, filling the show with interesting topics to discuss. We appreciate your showing up every day to help us do that. The panelists, we always assemble a group of people, and without them, this conversation gets really bad, and it's hardly ever even less than stellar, in my opinion, because I love the people who come here. They're just so talented and so full of knowledge. And the fact that they're willing to come on here and share it every day just impresses me to the ends of the earth. So thank you all to panelists today and panelists who've showed up all week to do this. We appreciate you very much. And as always, our crew on the back end, you're amazing. Uh, We thank you for all of the hard work you did switching things and making it go global. Uh, After Hours is 24-7 as always. We'll see you there right now.